2: Hello, hello, Kyla McDonald here from Times Radio. I'll be filling in for Manveen Rana on Stories of Our Times next week. But in the meantime, as Elon Musk waits for no person, apparently, we're bringing you a bonus episode this weekend. Yesterday, Musk put his $44 billion takeover of Twitter on pause. He, of course, as you might expect, tweeted... Twitter deal temporarily on hold, pending details supporting the calculation that spam and fake accounts represent less than 5% of users. Two hours later, he added, still committed to acquisition. Over the last few weeks, Musk has begun to sketch out a plan for how Twitter would change under his ownership. On Tuesday, he said Donald Trump would be allowed back as part of a free speech initiative.
0: Banning Trump from Twitter didn't end Trump's
2: voice. It will amplify it among the right. And this is why it is morally wrong and flat-out stupid. On Thursday, two senior executives were sacked. The company said it was going in a different direction and wished them well. But this latest move looks more like a dig at that hefty price tag, really. If lots of Twitter accounts are fake, maybe it's not worth all that money after all. The company's stock took a big hit yesterday. Investors seem sceptical that this deal will happen at all. And by the way, if it doesn't, Musk will have to pay a $1 billion termination penalty. Whatever happens next at Twitter, the future of social media and indeed public debate online is being thrashed out as we speak. And so who better to guide us through all the implications than the Sunday Times West Coast correspondent Danny Fortson? Regular listeners will know Danny from his Stories of Our Times episode All About Musk last month, but he also hosts his own weekly podcast for the Sunday Times called Danny in the Valley. So today we're listening to one of Danny's recent episodes all about this deal and the state of social media. I'll talk with you again on Monday. For now, though, over to Danny in the Valley.
0: Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley, your weekly dispatch from behind the scenes and inside the minds of the top people in tech. I'm your host, Danny Fortson, the West Coast correspondent for the Sunday Times. And this week, we have a double header. That's right, two guests for you. And they are both coming on to talk about social media, specifically... Elon Musk takeover of Twitter and what it says about the broader social media universe. Now, obviously, this has been kind of the story these last few weeks, but I wanted to let the dust settle a bit just to kind of get some clarity on what is happening, if this is going to happen, and then bring on a couple of people who I would submit are amongst the sharpest minds out there when it comes to thinking about social media, innovation, regulation, and what this takeover might actually mean for you, me, the world, you know, kind of what direction this might all go. So the first guest we have today is Hani Fareed. He's a professor at UC Berkeley School of Information. He's an expert in misinformation, digital forensics, and generally just being a very sensible voice about the information ecosystem, what works, what doesn't. He's been in Congress a bunch, advising lawmakers there, also in the UK, who's just in the House of Lords. So he is up first. And I think you're really gonna enjoy that. And then right after we bring on James Courier. And James is a partner at NFX, a bigger venture fund out here. And you may recall that James last came on the pod two years ago. When we were in the early days of the pandemic. And I brought him on to talk about this kind of unique time for social media that we were entering because we'd been in this kind of something of a deep sleep for years, an era between, say, 2013, 2019, where he called it was a social media ice age, which is this period in which basically investors stopped investing in social media, entrepreneurs stopped trying to launch new companies because Facebook had effectively won and would crush or copy to death any newcomers and then the pandemic opened a window because all of a sudden life was super weird and scary and everybody was stuck at home and there's all this screen-based life we were doing and so there was an excitement about what could be built during that time. We cover that. Short version is not much happened <laughs> in terms of new stuff. Um, but fast forward to today, the acute part of pandemic life is over, kind of getting back to life. Um, and then Elon Musk comes along and buys Twitter, uh, or at least makes an offer. for it. The deal won't close for months. but And it just got me thinking more broadly about social media because here we are. We're almost two decades in now. Facebook was uh, founded in 2004, Twitter in 2006, so it's 16 years ago. It's still a basket case in terms of business. They have no business model. They can't turn a profit. Moderation has been... Problematic, Let's say Facebook for the first time in its history has basically flatlined in terms of users, Pinterest another kind of OG, its users are declining for the past year. Again, this has been a company that's been around for a decade plus. And it just seems to me all of this is kind of pointing to some shifting of the tectonic plates of social media and kind of its role, where it goes from here, who's on the way up, who's on the way down. Etc. So we bring on James to talk about that. I think you guys are really going to enjoy this one. This one is another one of those where you walk away and you'll be like at the dinner party, which you may actually have now because people are doing that type of thing again. Um, you'll have lots of interesting, kind of incisive things to say about Musk's Twitter takeover and the state of social media, where we are going as a world when we think about online life. It's just a fascinating time. These two guys are awesome. Um, you guys are really going to enjoy it. So let's get to that right now. And first up is Hani Farid of UC Berkeley. Enjoy. So the reason I want to have you on is my broader idea, and I don't know if there is a there there, is it feels like when you look at what's happening, if you step back and look at what is happening with Facebook, it is kind of running out of road, right? Mm-hmm. What is happening with Even Pinterest running out of road. They're losing subscribers for a solid year now. We're almost two decades into the social media era. And it does feel like between the rise of TikTok, the kind of stalling of Facebook, the takeover of Twitter, who hasn't been able to get out of its own way for 16 years. Yeah, exactly. And by the
1: way, were it not for Trump? Prop. Remember when they were trying to sell? It yes. was a bargain sale. Totally. Nobody would even buy them exactly. at a discount. And then Trump came along, and it was the best thing that ever happened to Twitter.
0: Exactly. It feels like there's a theme here, and I don't know what it is, but it feels like we're kind of coming – we're entering a new era, a new epoch, whatever you want to call it, of social media as we're, like, you know, getting to close to two decades in. And I think the the Musk Twitter thing and this whole idea – this obsession with free speech is really interesting. And part of it, I think, is a complete red herring, but there's obviously something there. There's a bunch of, we've talked about it before, Parler, Getter, Gab, all of these kind of companies saying, well, you know, free speech doesn't exist anymore. Everybody's getting censored. We're going to be a free speech platform. We can get into why that's problematic. But it does feel like we're at a bit of a moment. And so that's why I want to talk to you is of just like, first of all, let's talk about Twitter. Yeah. And this whole idea that, you know, there is something wrong here. So maybe we can start there and just like, and this whole idea around free speech, because it does feel like, as you and I have discussed previously, not on the pod, around, you know, what are we talking about when we talk about free speech? And is this the right framing that we should be thinking about?
1: Yeah. So let's get a few things straight. Um, Everybody throws around this term free speech a lot. And this is not a free speech issue the way the Constitution conceives of it. The First Amendment says Congress shall pass no law. Free speech is about the government infringing on the rights of individuals. This is not what we are talking about. These are companies that have absolutely every right. And do you know why they have a right? Because of the First Amendment, (laughs) they are expressing their rights and their right is to say you can and cannot do. These are the rules of the road. And by the way, when Mark Zuckerberg steps up and tells you how much he loves free speech and open expression, would you please ask him why he bans adult pornography, the very content that we have to thank for modern free speech laws? Mm. He is allowed to restrict access to perfectly protected speech for business reasons. That's why he does it. Right. Because pornography is protected speech. Yes. And he can do that because the First Amendment gives him the right to do that. Right. Right. Okay. So this is not a free speech issue. What this is is about the ideal or, of an open and free internet and an open and free exchange of ideas. And I, and I know that that seems like I'm nitpicking and wordsmithing, but it is important To understand that Twitter is not violating your constitutional right, which is why nobody has ever, in the history of Twitter or Facebook or or TikTok or YouTube, sued a company for infringing on their rights.
0: Well, they've been sued. They haven't won. (laughs) They have been sued. Sorry, they have been sued, but they have
1: never been sued successfully. Yeah. Okay. So that's number one. Number two, I want to sort of emphasize something here too, because. Uh, Elon Musk is fond of saying that Twitter is the public square. And if it's a public square, you could try to imagine that maybe we should extend free speech rules to a private company, because it is that notion of this is where there is the exchange of ideas. But let me point out a few things. First of all, only 20% of US adults are on Twitter. And of that 20%, 10% constitute 80% of the material posted. So now you're talking about 2% of people, right? And not for nothing, just about by every study done, half of all activity on Twitter are bots. This is not a public square. This is a bunch of reporters, a bunch of journalists, and a bunch of influencers and, and Hollywood stars basically living in an echo chamber talking to each other. And the vast majority of the country completely uninterested in what they are having to say until it shows up um, in the New York Times or in the Washington Post. Okay. So this is not a public square. So you can't even make the argument that somehow this is a utility. Hmm. And if it was a utility, well, then maybe we should treat it a little bit differently. Now, let's go back to where we started, which is what do we want for the internet? Well, I think what we want is an open and free exchange of ideas. In the early days of the internet, what was the idea was to democratize access to information, to publishing, and to creation, and take the gatekeepers out of it, the big editors, the the TV studios, um, the decision makers. And the idea being that when you democratize access, you have a richer flow of information, Right. It's uh, it's Brandeis's concept. The best response to false speech is more speech, not less. Yeah. But what have we done? Have we actually done that? Well, in some ways, yes, but in some ways, no. Right. In some ways, yes, anybody can get onto Twitter. Anybody can get onto Facebook or YouTube or TikTok. But there are five trillion dollar tech companies that control those platforms. So all we did was move the power from the editorial page of The New York Times to Silicon Valley and Mark Zuckerberg. So I, I would argue we've not actually democratized anything. And what's particularly important to understand is that the Twitters and the the Facebooks are not marketplaces where ideas compete equally. These are marketplaces that manipulate users Mm. to drive engagement, to deliver ads, to make more money. And what that means is that ideas don't compete evenly. Right. The most outrageous, hateful, salacious, conspiratorial content is favored. Is amplified. Because right. it has been – and amplified because it drives engagement. Yeah. And so you don't have, in fact, an equal marketplace of ideas. And that's a problem because if you don't have that, you don't have the ideal of – an open and free marketplace where ideas compete. Right now, the worst ideas, the, the, the lies and the conspiracies are outweighed because they are being amplified by the very technologies that claim we are not the arbiters of truth. We don't make editorial decisions, even though they do. So I think if you want an open marketplace of ideas, if you want a rich conversation, you have to have rules of the road. The way to get that is not to say there are no rules. Mm. The way to get that is to say there are rules. And and when there are rules, we then can have a vibrant and civil and honest conversation. Because without rules, what happens is that you have a bully's pulpit. The biggest asshole, the biggest troll, the biggest jerk silences – all the other voices who say, Look, I've got things to say, but I, if I'm every time I go on Twitter, somebody threatens to rape and kill me and my family, at some point I'm out. And now you don't have a rich exchange of ideas. Last thing I'll say on this more often than not, when people say, Free speech, I get to say what I want. What they really want to say is I don't want there to be consequences to things that I say, Mm. even though sometimes there are consequences. So, for example, if somebody walks into a restaurant, sits on a table and starts berating the table next to them because they don't like their sexuality or their gender or their religion or their identity, they're going to get kicked out of that restaurant, right? Because you have created a hostile place. That's not a free speech issue because you are taking somebody else's rights away by expressing your rights and that is not okay. You are going to get kicked out of that restaurant and you probably are never coming back. And yet on Twitter, this happens every day and people not only don't get banned, they get celebrated, they get amplified, they get promoted.
0: Like Elon Musk. (laughs)
1: Like Elon Musk, exactly, like Donald Trump. So if we really wanna talk about the ideal We want to have an open and free exchange of ideas. We want to have a diversity of ideas and thinking we need rules of the road. And it's not – you don't have to look at – you don't have to trust me. The reason why Twitter has evolved in its 16 years, the reason why Facebook has evolved is they started with this ideal. And and it wasn't an ideal, by the way. It was a business decision because content moderation is hard and expensive. So they tried no rules. And it was a disaster. It was a complete and unmitigated disaster. And the reason we are where we are or slowly getting to where we are now is because what they have realized is without rules, it's chaos. And by the way, the same is true in the physical world.
0: Right. And so where we are right now, just when you talk about Facebook, that you know they say they have something like 30,000 people working on content yeah. moderation. You have Twitter. Twitter is much smaller, but they are – Very clumsily and haltingly and slowly been putting in rules, testing. You know, some examples, you know, there's plenty of examples where it was, you know, the rules were not applied evenly. Everybody's talking about, you know, the Hunter Biden story, for example. So they're obviously making mistakes and it's imperfect, but it does feel like everybody's trying to figure out. Okay,
1: so a couple of things. Uh, Facebook likes to boast about their 30,000 users, but I'll remind you, they have 3 billion users.
0: Yeah, yeah, totally.
1: They don't need 30,000 moderators. They need 3 million (laughs) moderators. They're off by several orders (laughs) of magnitude, right? And the the number to look at, by the way, is, so here we are in the Bay Area. How many police officers, parole officers, judges, public defenders, uh, uh, safety and security per person? It's roughly one in a hundred. Facebook is roughly one in 100,000 to a million. You can't police. And and by the way, they are also policing a global community, not just a local community where similar norms and and, and culture. So that's number one. Now, in the other issue, the way social media has tried to deal with problems, here's the physical analogy I like to describe, is imagine I design a brand new plane. And what I decide to do is load it up with a bunch of passengers and take off and start debugging (laughs) mid-flight. I mean, that's what they're doing. And by the way, does anybody think that maybe we should do a test flight before we actually put human beings on this plane? When we release products into the physical world, medicines, food,
0: clothing. There's a product safety kind of apparatus.
1: Yes. And it's rigorous. There's an entire government oversight to make sure that companies are not releasing faulty uh, products that will harm individuals. And by the way, why did we do this? Is because when we didn't do it, the companies were releasing products that caught on fire spontaneously and killed people. And so when we created liability for the companies, they had to do a calculation. Do we let people die or do we make the product safe? Well, if we let people die, it's going to cost us a lot of money, so we're going to make the product safe, right? And we haven't done that with the tech sector, and that's why we have these unsafe products. But now they're trying to debug a platform in real time at 30,000 feet with 3 billion people on the plane. And you can't build safety in after the fact, that's number one, let me add one more thing here, is that the safety measures run exactly counter to the underlying business model that has made these companies trillion dollar valuations. How's that? The companies give away their product for free. Yep. Right. And by the way, let me just point out that the reason for that is that 20 years ago, nobody really saw or thought how we were going to do online commerce. We were all uncomfortable with credit cards online. We weren't sure people would do subscriptions. And 20 years later, it turns out we're all fine with it. But at the time, the only business model that could be conceived of was what Google had started, ad-based business model, give the product away for free and deliver ads, and then Facebook perfected. And what that means is that if you are in the, the business of giving away your product for free then, by the way, you are not the customer, you are the product. Um, And that means that you have to maximize user engagement to maximize ad delivery to maximize ad profit. And so that means that you are incentivized to keep a person on the platform for as long as possible, which means you're going to find the content that does that. And it turns out, we're sort of a bunch of jerks. It turns out we are drawn to the most outrageous, hateful, salacious, and conspiratorial content, and that's why the algorithms keep promoting that. And so now you have two problems. You have a plane with three billion people flying at 30,000 feet, trying to debug a very complex system in real time, And doing so is going to reduce your profits significantly because you have to create safety and you have to you have to favor civil and honest and decent, which runs exactly counter to the business model that has made you a trillion dollar valuation. And on top of that, you don't have the liability pressure yeah. that the pharmaceutical industry has or the automotive industry has. And so there's not a lot of financial incentive for you to get your act together because you're you're now a trillion-dollar company
0: on exactly this core business model of, of trafficking and outrage. So when we're thinking about Twitter, Musk has basically said, as we referred to earlier, he's like – I mean what he has said publicly and he's starting to dribble out bits and pieces. But the broad idea is – Basically, maximal speech as long as it doesn't break the law. Yeah. But for example, like bullying doesn't break the law. Hate speech is legal here, but it's not legal in Germany. Yeah. And it's just, I'm, it's a really interesting kind of concept, this idea of trying to remove as many guardrails as possible when at the end of the day, to your point, you want as many people on here as possible, Right because that's the way you sell ads that's the way well, that's what makes a place vibrant et cetera. but it does feel like that type of no holds barred system especially when the algorithms are amplifying the most viral stuff yeah it's as we have just discussed before it kind of empowers the assholes
1: yeah that's right so here let me let me say i think the answer to what you want to do in content moderation depends on what are you trying to accomplish mm. If you want the biggest jerks to be the biggest jerks on the platform, then yes, remove all barriers, remove all the rules. If, if Elon Musk wanted to spend 40 some odd billion dollars simply so he can be an asshole on Twitter, then that is absolutely what he should do, right? But if what you want is what you claim you want, which is free, open speech, dialogue, well, then you exactly want rules of the road. Um, You absolutely want to put guardrails in so that people can feel safe and comfortable and welcome and we can have an honest exchange. Here's maybe not a perfect analogy, but an interesting one. Um, I'm old enough to remember when we used to be able to smoke Anywhere we wanted, including airplanes and grocery stores and bars and restaurants. And and slowly people started to understand the impact of of secondhand smoke. And we started to ban smoking and and bars were probably the last ones to come along. And when we started talking about banning smoking in in bars and restaurants, uh, the Bar and Restaurant Association said this is going to destroy bars and restaurants. They will go out of business. But you know what happened? It's not true. What happened is all the smokers left, but then all the people who were being kept out because they didn't want to have lung cancer at the end of the night came back in.
0: Or just stink at the end of the night.
1: Yeah, or just stink to high heaven for the next three days. Yeah, And so this idea that somehow putting rules will harm people, well, yes, it will exclude certain people, the assholes and the bullies when it comes to the Twitter rules, but it brings in people of color, uh, women. LGBTQ, people from marginalized groups, uh, diverse and even unpopular opinions. And that, if that what you want is a true exchange of ideas, if you really want a town square, mm. 100% you want rules of the road to allow those people in. But if all you want is to be able to have the assholes and the bullies and the jerks say whatever they want without consequences, then Elon Musk is 100% right. Bare minimum set of rules. Yeah. But then that's a very different thing you're optimizing for.
0: Yeah. It'll be interesting to see how this turns out because, I mean, as a lot of people who are in the social media world and have been there on that coal face for a long time are saying like, oh boy, you have no idea what you've got yourself into.
1: I think that's exactly right. And by the way, look, YouTube has learned the lesson. They can't, you know, they can't have no rules of the world. And they've started putting in pretty significant rules. Facebook, slow, but they're getting there. Twitter is the same thing. And by the way, the sites, the Gabs and the Parlors, and the truth social, yeah. um, you know, they figured out very quickly without rules, it degrades very quickly. And by the way, in the ultimate, you know, irony is that if you go look at Truth Social, Trump's so called new social media company, one of the rules of the road is that you can't criticize Truth Social. <laughs> so let's not pretend that these are people who really want free speech and free expression, right? right? right they want right, it right. their way. Right, and that is a very different thing than this ideal that we are talking about.
0: So, I have two questions. One, are so talking about this this kind of painful journey toward putting in rules that we have all been kind of a party to over the last decade or so, um, especially in recent years. Are you optimistic that we're kind of the direction of travel generally? Is positive, even though when we look at Facebook or Twitter, you know, you can say any go anywhere. And it's it's a dumpster fire of terrible stuff.
1: Yeah, I, I am in the following for the following reason. Ten years ago, when I was trying to have these conversations with reporters and regulators, nobody would listen. They're like, look, everything is free everything's fine. This is great. It's innovation. You're being an anti-technologist. But today, 10 years later, we've all woken up, as you said, and realized that it's all a big, huge, ugly dumpster fire and and it is out of control. Mm -hmm. So the good news is, is that the EU is now looking at passing very aggressive legislation. Um, Coming out of committee is the DSA, the Digital Safety Act, and the DMA around anti-competitive behaviors. Coming out of the UK is the online safety bill. Uh, The states are starting to look at regulating the the technology sector because they feel like the US government, and it is largely true, has fallen asleep at the wheel. Australia has been very aggressive and, and moving the ball on tech regulation. So I think our regulators, and by the way, just as a side note here, part of the reason why it took so long is that the regulators today have young kids. And they are seeing Mm. the impact of those kids, the technology on their young kids and the risks to them.
0: It's that first generation, right? That has grown up with tech. Exactly. And they suddenly realize, oh, this is
1: very personal. And so I am optimistic that we have I don't know why it took 20 years, but fine, here we are. But I do feel like the regulators, not so much here in the U.S., but certainly in the EU and the U.K. and Australia and in Canada, have started to wake up. And I think with government regulation, like any industry, right, every industry goes through this. The automotive industry went through it. The airline industry went through it. The pharmaceutical industry went through it. This industry is going through it at a very different scale and speed and impact because the nature of it. But... I do think we're, in, we're going in the right direction. I think that we have gone from the Jack Dorsey, we are the free speech wing of the free speech party to say, yeah, we need some rules because yeah. otherwise things are going to go sideways very fast. I do think there's going to be growing pains. I do think that we have to think about at the same breath as we are thinking about regulating the tech industry, we have to talk about antitrust issues because we have $5 trillion tech companies that don't leave a lot of oxygen for new and better ideas. I think we have to think about different business models. I don't think all of tech has to be ad-driven and data-driven and privacy-invading services. I think we are grown up enough as as an industry to say, look, people now are starting to understand that there is value to paying for things (laughs) the way we do in the offline world. So I'd like to see business models being encouraged and the government can also do that both with antitrust and with investment in new technologies. I'd like to see the venture capitalists um, down south of here in Palo Alto start trying to think about being more creative and new business models that can avoid some of the pitfalls. So I have a little bit of optimism, but, you know, these are very powerful companies yeah. with very, very far reaches. And we are not talking about hypothetical threats. We have seen horrific Uh, human rights violations being fueled by technology in Myanmar and Sri Lanka and the Philippines and in India. We have seen disruptions of democracy. We have people's individuals' lives are being destroyed because they are being trafficked online. Their kids are buying uh, illegal drugs online and overdosing. They're buying illegal weapons. We have seen disruptions to our democracy. Look, six million people died from COVID over the last two years. By most accounts, 20 to 30% of those are because of disinformation, because people believe masks don't work. People believe that Bill Gates is trying to put a tracker in them through a a COVID vaccine. People believe 5G is causing COVID and therefore are not wearing masks, are not isolating and not getting vaccinated. That is hundreds of thousands of people. And here's the last thing I'll say on this, and I know I'm going on a little bit, is that I think for a long time, we talked about the internet the way we talk about Las Vegas. What happens on the internet stays on the internet. <laughs> we talk about yeah. online worlds and offline worlds and online harms and yeah, offline yeah. harms. There is no online and offline. It's one world. And what happens on the internet doesn't stay on the internet. There are real world harms and implications to this technology. And we have finally, I think, are starting to come around is that it's not just a bunch of bits and pixels on my screen. This is real harm that we are talking about, and I think it has taken the companies, the societies, and the governments way too long to figure it out. But back to your question, I think we are starting
0: to figure it out. So I have a
1: little glimmer of hopefulness here.
0: Right. Um, On that 20 to 30% due to disinformation, is that – a number that I can find? Or where, where is that data from? Or you know what?
1: I saw this on a – it was an economist. Oh, okay. You know they
0: do these calculations. Yeah, Let yeah. me see if I can dig it up. Oh, that would be really – yeah, I'd love to see that.
1: And I don't know how accurate those numbers are.
0: Um, yeah. There will be a, there'll be a non-small percentage though, I would guess. Yeah.
1: It. it's yeah. it's Okay. So let's, let's say I'm off – let's say it's 10%. That's 600,000 people.
0: <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs>
1: totally. <laughs> right. And you know that number – by the way, this number I do know because we've done the surveys. 20% of Americans, and actually this is true worldwide, believe that Bill Gates created COVID to create a vaccine, to put a tracking device in your body, right? 20%. So that means one in five people. That can't be true. That cannot be true. We've done this. We, I have now seen five independent surveys. We did one ourselves worldwide, one in five, report this, right? By the oh way, even if I'm off by a factor of two, 10%, fine. Let's call it 10%. yeah. yeah. of Americans believe the core tenets of QAnon to be true, a cabal of of Mm. Satan-worshipping, blood-sucking pedophiles were plotting against Trump. 17%. The 20% now seems like a perfectly reasonable (laughs) number, by the way, by that comparison, right? right? 50% of Republicans believe that Trump won the election, right? We are living in alternate parallel universes. And the reason, by the way, is because the Facebooks of the world and the TikToks of the world and the YouTubes and the Twitters have created this bizarre rabbit holes and echo chambers where they are reinforcing the same ideals. And here now, let's come back to free speech again. Is free speech about you being inundated with the absolute craziest conspiracies because you happen to click on one link once? No. And they open the free and exchange of ideas, a diverse set of ideas that you are forced, that we become uncomfortable with right? Of course, the easiest thing to do is for me to look at my newsfeed and have Mark Zuckerberg keep feeding me the same stuff that conforms my worldview. Of course, that's easy. It's like eating gummy bears. But, you know, that's not what we really want from the internet. That was not the ideal of the internet. We, We want to become better informed. We want access to real information, not crap. And that's what we are being fed on social media.
0: So I have one more question. I'll let you go. Crystal ball. You don't actually have a crystal ball. Imagine a crystal ball. Hold on, hold on. Wait, you don't you don't actually know that. Uh, hold on, <laughs> let me look. <laughs> so, what do you how do you think this the Musk Twitter thing goes? Just based on what he has said publicly, which is like I'm going to take this over, I'm going to reform this company out of the public eye as a private company, I'm going to remove as many rules as possible just basically hue to this minimalist intervention in terms of as long as it ain't breaking the law you can say whatever you want
1: well i don't think it i don't think you need a crystal ball to ask what will twitter look like if musk does that because just rewind twitter five years and that will be bad <laughs> i mean it's, it's you know you know this yeah. just going back in time right yeah. we know what it's going to look like and by the way we also know that advertisers are going to run away mm. why did youtube and facebook ban adult pornography from day one Because advertisers don't want their ads on that stuff. That's why they did it, right? The advertisers have the power here. If you are an ad-driven business, you have to worry about your advertisers. And the advertisers do not want their ads running on this stuff. And they will pull their ads, right? So you know what it's going to look like. Now, the question is, is how much does Musk want to be an asshole on Twitter? Uh, uh, Because if that's that important to him. I think a lot. Then, then, then he, that's what he should do. And, and I think what you will see is that it will absolutely degrade into an even larger dumpster fire than it is now. I think people will flee. And my hope, this could be a really good thing, by the way, is that a more sensible platform comes up and said, OK, we think there is value to the core ethos of Twitter, but we believe there should be rules so that we have the diversity of ideas that we want. And maybe there's a better competitor will come of this. So I think that would be great. I think that would be a terrific drive it into the ground because I do think there is some value. Yeah. I don't think there's as much value as much things there is. But I think there's some value to these platforms for reporters um, to hear from politicians directly. But I think you have to have rules of the road. And I think when you remove them, a lot of people are going to jump ship.
0: Now, how Musk's responds to that, I think just depends on how truly crazy he is. Totally. And I think that just lastly, uh, that concept, When you have Parler, Gab, Getter, Truth Social, etc. Yeah. They're all founded on the same kind of idea of victimhood, which is like conservatives are being muzzled. Yeah. It's first of all, it's not an ideal. It's a lie. Right. (laughs) Because we know. That
1: consistently, conservative voices dominate social media by almost every metric. On Twitter, they dominate. On Facebook, they dominate. Um, They dominate these platforms in terms of engagement. So it's based on a lie, Mm. right? And this false idea that people are against you because you're an asshole. The problem isn't that you're a conservative. It's that you're a jerk. And don't confuse those two things.
0: So two years ago, you came on. We talked about the thawing of the social media ice age. We had all these kind of new interesting ideas, the rise of like Zoom into like this household name and then the kind of crash of Zoom back to earth. It's obviously not going away, but it's not it's not what it was. Um, but I'd love to get a sense of you of like, you know, your sense of the lay of the land here in May 2022. And when, when we're thinking about particularly social media in light of the Musk Twitter takeover and what's happening at Facebook, et cetera.
3: Yeah, yeah, you bet. I do. I do think that you know the social media thing. It may may or may not be a moment, but it is certainly a period of of rapid evolution. I mean, we were in kind of an ice age in the 2010s where not much was going on, and uh, we are seeing a lot of changes with the maturation of the space, right? So 2002 starts to be this time when, because of digital photos, we can start to express ourselves uh, better to each other and show each other uh, what's going on with us. And it's very, an intense, ex- you know, expression of life. And so we all gravitate to it. Suddenly we have the read, we have the write and read web, not just the read web. And so we can yeah. post really easily. And so we have this explosion of peer to peer communication that we just never had in the newspaper radio and TV technologies of the past
0: yeah
3: and so now the content becomes us and our thoughts not Nicole Kidman and Tom Cruise and the presidents and. So on. And so we had that exciting explosion between sort of 2002 and 2011 and then it kind of cooled off for a while. Then we had the pandemic which caused us to have things that actually didn't you know take a hold like clubhouse or house party yeah. or zoom or other things that kind of came and went. And we are left now at the end of COVID going back to our normal behaviors and the older networks, the defensible network, the network effect businesses like Facebook, like Pinterest, like Twitter, they are still there. Yep. They are still there as the places for us to express our emotional and psychological needs, interests, et cetera. Yet their growth has slowed and stopped in many cases, right? I mean, Twitter did 5 billion of revenue with maybe 320 million users, Mm -hmm. call it 230 million daily actives. You know, only 36 million of those are Americans. Yep. And they haven't really grown in six years or so. If you look at their revenues, the revenues were up, but their profits were way down to, to basically break even. So there's no breakthrough revenue model there. And, As these things age, like the newspapers prior to them, the value of them, because they've got this network effect and they're not going anywhere, they're not being replaced. They're not being replaced yet. Sure, they're shrinking or they're flattening. Facebook is flattening, but it's not being replaced. Consumers are fickle. Consumers move on to the next novel thing. They don't replace the old thing with, with a new network. It's just too much effort. It's too much work. Hmm. And that's why Elon had to buy Twitter. He couldn't make his own. I saw a lot of people talking about this. Like, why doesn't he just make his own? Well, it's not possible. because the network effect. Yeah,
0: I saw a lot of that. Oh, you're the world's greatest engineer. Just make yeah. a Twitter.
3: But the Twitter isn't about the engineering. The Twitter is about the network of people. It's about the participation of the community. And that is nearly impossible to replicate. And so you would have to come up with a brand new experience. And no one has really done that other than TikTok in the last 12 years to create a new network, to create a new graph, as we say. So we're left here with these aging companies like Twitter and Facebook and Pinterest who are flattening in their growth, but they maintain and are perhaps increasing in their importance in terms of societal discourse, mm. and just like Murdoch bought the Wall Street Journal for five billion in two thousand and seven, he didn't buy it for the cash flow. Yeah, he didn't buy it because it made sense from a growth perspective or an EBITDA perspective. He bought it because of its if its its influence, its ability to impact public discourse, and Elon is certainly doing that for Twitter this time. It's just at a ten times uh, the amount that Murdoch paid for the Wall Street Journal. And so, yeah, we are at this moment where we're now going to see if a company like a Facebook or a Pinterest or a Twitter gets a rotor router <laughs> in the name of Elon <laughs> Musk, yeah. the product managers are going to change, the language is going to change, the business model might change, what it wants to be when it grows up might change. Hmm. We'll see what can be done with a network effect business as it seeks to evolve into the future at a more rapid or more violent pace, if you will. And one thing that I haven't heard people say, and I'll, and I'll leave you to ask the next questions, is one thing people have been saying about Facebook is that they've been pushing profit. They've been pushing ad, in, you know, dwell time, engagement in order to drive up revenue. And they got to their trillion dollar valuation. Now they're down to 600 billion. They dropped in half and have now bounced back to 600. But they were profit maximizing. Some people were saying, boy, as the... The place for public discourse, should they be profit maximizing or should they, like the Washington Post, the L.A. Times, Chicago Tribune, the New York Times, of the last hundred years, Mm. which were owned by individual families, should they understand their role and not profit maximize but balance their profit and their sustainability with the needs of, of society and Facebook did not. And they got a lot of criticism for it. Maybe Twitter was these last six or seven years. Maybe Twitter mm. was taking some responsibility, some stewardship over their responsibility, their their place in the civic society. And therefore, they weren't profit maximizing, which left them open to this type of a takeover. Anyway, it's an interesting point.
0: Yeah. So what do you, um, do you have a take on what If you were a betting man, and I don't know if you are. I mean, you're a venture capitalist, so of course you're a betting man. But (laughs) this kind of betting. But like in terms of the direction of Twitter and this idea that, you know, well, I think the whole debate to me is flawed around this this idea of free speech. We've spoken about this a lot. This idea of, well, Elon Musk is saying maximize speech, minimize the rules as long as you're not breaking the law. Okay, fine. We all know what that looks like and what that can look like. That drives people away. It drives advertisers away. But it's it's a very strong narrative, so much so that you have Truth Social and Getter and Gab and all these other things, which, you know, I don't think any of them are going to do particularly well. But there's certainly, like, a a narrative that has built up that is, that is very strong. And there have been, you know, specific instances where, yes, absolutely – These companies screwed up. They took things down they shouldn't have, et cetera. But by and large, these are profit-seeking entities who want to keep people around. And if you let everybody run wild, people aren't going to stay around.
3: Well, that's an interesting thought. I mean, is that true? I think so. Isn't it the case that when people say crazy things, more people come and take a look? More people click? More <laughs> the, people uh, the stick car, around? The, uh, the car mean, accident metaphor, yeah. 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 I mean, it's the look for the last hundred years up until social media began, we had this interesting confluence between the technologies, which were one to many, mm. which meant that the one could gate what was coming out to the many. Right. Just because of the structure of the technology. And then you had the culture of the people who owned those entities to do what, you know, Edith Hamilton quoting Greek philosophers said to tame the savageness of man and make gentle the life of this world. Right. And the the people who owned these, these bullhorns, they felt they had a responsibility. There was a culture associated with that. This new idea that total free speech of chaos. I mean, the Greeks have warned us about this. Because in fact, people do click on and spend more dwell time on anger and controversy yes, so i I might challenge you as to you know if if Elon goes in and gets rid of all the anger bots, Twitter's traffic might fall
0: I mean I think it absolutely would no just by sheer numbers
3: yeah, so I would question whether if he makes it a free for all and you can pretty much say anything and do anything I think you're going to see Twitter's traffic go up not because it's good for society but Because that's what people respond to. They respond to disdain and anger and controversy.
0: But as a technologist, do you have any sense of why? I mean, there's a whole discussion around Twitter and the way it was run in management. But if there are millions, tens of millions of bots that everybody seems to acknowledge exist and kind of whip up the most, you know, kind of retweet and whip up the most extreme elements of things that are being posted there is this just a really 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 hard technological problem or is there is, is there a kind of a simple answer to why not get rid of these things
3: i think it's a very hard technical problem i mean my friends who are over at facebook and google working on the security issues there they're working 16 hour days for decades trying to fend off the attacks on the surface area of their various companies it is not easy to do and i and I, I suspect that elon doesn't, not having been spending time inside of social media companies, doesn't understand how yeah. complicated it is. He's certainly capable of learning about it, but it's going to take him a couple of years to learn that. And he could perhaps recruit a team who does know about it and they could do a better job than the existing Twitter team. But I think it's a hard problem. I think there's a lot of, a lot of bad actors.
0: And that's what I think is going to be really interesting, right? Because there's this whole idea of like, well, Elon is the greatest entrepreneur of our generation I think he is will go down as one of the most consequential humans of the century, just the things he has done. Um, if you think about electrification of transport and opening of space and who knows what he does with Neuralink and other stuff. But he's done some big things. But the idea that he can kind of go in, wave his magic wand, get rid of the bots and it'll all be fine. That just feels, um, it feels like a tall order.
3: I, I think if you had a personal conversation with Elon, he would not say it's that simple. I think he, he, he kind of knows that he's up against something hard. I just don't think he understands the details of it. And, and he doesn't need to necessarily, but somebody needs to. And it's going to be a hard challenge. It's going to be a hard challenge. Look, Twitter's network is actually not that big, 230 million people compared. Yeah. It's like one eighth the size of Facebook. It's, it's smaller than Snapchat. It's smaller than TikTok. But it is the public. it is the public eye. It's where everybody can see everything. It's the public uh, bullhorn. So it's the soapbox. And and that's why it's so important. And if we look at its uniqueness, and you know, each of these businesses we're talking about has a network effect, typically a direct network effect. Yeah. And out of the 16 different types of network effects, the one they have is the direct network effect. And uh, they share that characteristic, but they're different. Yeah. Example. Twitter is extreme in all of these networks in terms of the small number of people producing a large number of tweets or a large amount of the traffic. So I don't know the exact numbers, but to give you an order of magnitude comparison, a Twitter has, let's say, 3% of people producing 90% of the tweets and 95% of the traffic, whereas a Facebook probably has about 30 to 35% of people producing 90% of the content. It's an order of magnitude difference. It's very, Twitter is a very unique and differentiated network effect. And whatever evolution of the product and the experience comes, is going to have to take that into account. And, and look, the other thing for people to know is that not only do you have different shapes and structures to your network effects, because nodes in your networks are not all created equal. Yeah, There's very diff- big differences. And different people and personalities are really good at Twitter. And those people don't translate mm-hmm. to the TikTok. And those people don't translate to uh, Pinterest. Those people don't translate to Reddit. Those be- people are finding their mediums when they, where they are good. Some people are really good at essay writing. Others are not so good at essay writing. Yeah, Naval Ravikan is a fantastic tweeter. He had a blog for a long time, also good, but not nearly as good as his tweeting. There's something about the way Naval's personality develops language that is so good for Twitter. And certain people are discovering their natural talent for the Twitter medium. Hmm. And, you know, you know who those people are. And th- it's very unique to that medium. And so as you think about evolving what that thing is, you have to take into account how special this experience is versus other social media types and networks. It's a unique thing.
0: And that's why it's persistent. For sure. I want to talk about, because I going to come back to Twitter in a bit, but TikTok is to me, it's just an extraordinary story. And I know that they have plowed a ton of money into like kind of getting it to where it has in terms of just.
3: Billions, somewhere between two and four billion for listeners, somewhere between two and four billion of marketing spend to drive. In ads. In ads. Wow. Wow. No one's ever tried that before. They were paying up to $30 or $40 per install at one point. Relative to what is it? Where a lifetime value, a lifetime value might be 5 bucks for a user. For a user. But what they were seeking was the network effect, and they got it. And it's the same mentality that we saw Didi fighting Uber in China, right? In China. In China when when Didi copied Uber, Uber comes to China and Didi says we're just going to give away our rides for free until Uber goes away, and you're like, yeah, but you're going to lose two or three billion dollars a year, and they're like, yeah, so what? This is a it's a hundred billion dollar company, so what if we lose two billion dollars or three billion dollars a year for eight years? That's twenty four billion to have a hundred billion. It's a good bet. I can do that for eight years. A very long term view on where it goes, and I think the same mentality was was brought to bear on building the TikTok network. And so I know this
0: isn't exactly a zero sum game. I always think about like you know when people are like, well. The rise of TikTok has really hurt YouTube, for example, or whomever. But this is really about like, I feel like we're in the stage where our time online is still not necessarily infinite, but still expanding. Uh, it's not a zero sum game where the more I spend on TikTok, I necessarily spend less somewhere else, although I think that does happen.
3: To put some numbers in what you're saying, Americans still watch four hours and 20 minutes of TV a day, right? which is time that, that, that online can still steal from Americans at least.
0: Yeah, and Reed Hastings famously said, you know, his competitor is, sure, it's Disney, it's HBO, it's also a glass of red wine with your friends. It's your free time. Yeah,
3: and and video games. Famously, he declared that it was video games, yeah.
0: Right. But do you have a sense of, in terms of the kind of the competitive dynamics, whose lunch, if anybody, is TikTok's eating? Is it YouTube? Is it Facebook? I mean, Zuckerberg's been very, very clear that like this is – the new force in our kind of universe. And he's kind of said very clearly, like, this is the strongest competitor we've ever faced or whatever, whatever it is he said.
3: Yeah. I feel as if it's, it's largely taking from Insta. And, uh, I think the people who are using TikTok intensively aren't really using Facebook anyway. So I see it as more of a competitor to things like Reddit and Pinterest and Insta and things that are media consumption experiences. But frankly, I don't, I don't expect TikTok to be that big of a force 10 years from now I think it's you don't and no unless they evolve aggressively what their experience is they're going to see that same sort of asymptoting that that Facebook is having and they're going to see that same sort of aging out it's a TikTok is a novelty experience it is and it's not about my identity i go on there to consume content it's a read only medium for 98% of us yeah and the, the reason Facebook has been persistent with the age group in which it dominates is because 30, 35% of people are actually creating content and have their real names there. And TikTok, I don't post a TikTok. You know, I, I look at it with my kids and and it's fun for a little bit, but I'm not leaving anything of myself there. Right. And with Twitter, I am. With Facebook, I am. With Snap, I am. And I think those platforms in my psychological evaluation about what drives these things is going to be more persistent because it's my real name, my real identity.
0: That's really interesting because I think something that hasn't been covered a ton um, was Zuckerberg on the most recent earnings call talked about how they're starting to try to build up a system that sounds like it's very similar to what TikTok does, which to your point is it's not about your social graph. It's not about what your friends are doing or posting. It's about this algorithm that interprets every little micro action, how long you linger on a video, whatever, and feeds more stuff like that. It's an AI based recommendation system in a way that is kind of divorced from the social graph of Facebook. And it looks like Facebook is saying, yeah, we want to do more of that, which is interesting given what you're saying about the different dynamics between how TikTok works and that kind of you know, the feed that that it gives you relative to Facebook.
3: Yeah. I mean, look, TikTok is a higher dopamine TV. Yeah. Right. And to the extent that Facebook and TV compete, Facebook's competing with TV and with TikTok. It's the same, it's the same essential product. And you could have done TikTok, you know, 15 years ago. It's not as if the technology has enabled that. I mean, not, not 15, but you could have done it in 2008 when I can immediately take videos of myself with my cell phone when we all suddenly had videos that we could make of ourselves. It's just that no one came up with that interface.
0: And so, do you buy this idea that that is kind of it's like a popular thing to say these days is that, oh, Facebook is going to be the next Yahoo or whatever? Choose your kind of now mostly irrelevant tech name. And I don't, I don't buy that just given to your point. It's used by 3 billion people. It's not like it's just going to disappear. But what is your kind of when you look out kind of into the future, what does the future look like for Facebook?
3: Yeah, so with all consumer products, they have a rise and then they have a fall. Mm. And you have to understand the timeline of that. I mean, Disney does not have a fall and Coca-Cola hasn't had a fall. But pretty much every other product, Peloton, GoPro, Fitbit, you know, Boston Chicken, like all, every consumer product has a rise and a fall. And what you have to ask yourself is how quickly are they going to fall? And What we saw with video games is that they rise up and then they fall really quickly. Right. So lots of the video games have come and gone. The ones that have persisted like world of Warcraft have done so because people have built real friendships, real groups, real communities. They've taken advantage of what we call Reed's law, where you build clusters into the network. And I stay for the cluster, not for the overall game. I stay for the cluster that's been built within the game. And you got to look at Facebook and say, okay, it's going to come and go, but how quickly? And the answer is, well, you know, when the thirty-five-year-olds who have all their friends on Facebook are ninety and dying, hmm. then Facebook will die. <laughs> but it's going to take a long time. Like these yeah. people have all their friends. You know, right now, you know the the forty-somethings are all talking about their kids, and then in twenty years they'll be talking about their grandkids. So, I. I feel as if Facebook continues to do an okay job, they're going to take that cohort and live and die with them. And in the meantime, they can have things like Insta, they can have WhatsApp, they could have, you know, the thing that clones TikTok and just something. They could do something in crypto that, you know, uh, they could do something with commerce, with, with Instagram. There's so much they can do in terms of reinforcing those network effects that they already have that they could sustain themselves and that the decline could be sm- uh, slow for the main product while other products continue to come up at a more accelerated rate. So that the Facebook Inc., the overall entity, should have continued strong earnings, continued strong network effects in various places. And it's very survivable. Right. And so when we talk about going back to
0: that idea of this, uh, the end of the ice age and kind of this blossoming of things like Clubhouse, for example, which came and went with astounding speed. I mean, it's still around, but it's not around in that sense. What do you think now that we are actually, we're out of the, we're not out of the pandemic, but you know what I mean? That kind of the pandemic life is kind of receding and we're kind of getting back to normal.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think everyone's back on ESPN. They're all watching the NBA. They're going to watch the NFL, just like we did for the 30 years prior. I mean, people are going to go back to their same media habits, including Twitter and including Facebook and including Insta and increasingly TikTok. I think the COVID shift that opened up new opportunities for new graphs to be built, that was not taken advantage of by anybody, Mm. except Zoom, except Zoom. The window was open for a period of 18 to 24 months. And of the companies that had a chance at it, they didn't end up working. It's like we get 16 sitcoms every year on the television. One of them survives right. to the next season and you know maybe survives to the second season. It's the same thing. These are, these are things for consumers that have magic to them, that are very delicate, yeah. and they either hit it just right or they miss. And that's the nature of this business. Look, we've said before that in the tech world, These social media properties are the most creative. They're the most Hollywood. They're the most media of anything we do compared to, let's say, enterprise SaaS, where it's much more spreadsheetable. You just ask the customers what they want. You build it for them, blah, blah, blah. These things on this end of the spectrum just take a lot of magic. They take a lot of delicacy in the same way that Seinfeld is just somehow slightly more funny than the other sitcoms.
0: Right. To that point, Be Real. Do you have a, a take on Be Real? It's a thing amongst, sounds like mostly college age people. But again, I mean, it's kind of hard to know what's going to be a flash in the pan, what's going to take off. But it's it seems to be interesting. And the app, for people who don't know, it's like you get a push notification that says take a photo within the next minute or two or whatever. And you, the whole idea is you take a photo of yourself and the out-facing camera. The idea being it's kind of the anti-Instagram. You don't have time to post things. There's no filters And people seem to be drawn to that idea again, whether it has staying power, I don't know, but it's kind of,
3: it's an interesting,
0: it's having an interesting moment.
3: Yeah. So we've, we saw that, uh, double camera photo idea, I don't know, four years ago. Mm. And, uh, I think it's great that Be Real is taking off. I think it's a novelty like Whisper was, you know, around the college campuses to do the anonymous stuff or like, um, you know, chat roulette was right. Oh, chat roulette. Isn't it? (laughs) Right, right, right. Right. You know, and there've been several of these, there, there've been so many of these, uh, daily booth. Do you remember daily booth? That was your daily photo, which you took every day and it would go out on your feed. and, Mm. and we can come up with these novelties, but unless they build a new social graph and they allow you to, you know, build a new identity, then they're not going to have much staying power and they just end up being quick novelties. We saw this with HQ Trivia. Right. right. Sequoia backed HQ Trivia. And I'm like, guys, this is novelty. This is not going to have staying power.
0: And so just going back to that core idea and Elon Musk and Twitter, that is a big part of the value there is this idea that it's really, 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 really hard to build a network around, you know, build a social graph.
3: That's all the value. Like, that's a 100% of the value. It's like Craigslist. Like w- Craigslist haven't changed their product in 21 years. The only thing that matters about Craigslist is that everyone is there. Not everyone, but the liquidity of the marketplace exists and you can't replicate it because you just can't pull people off of, of uh, Craigslist very easily. Is it just works, yeah. even if it's crap from 2001. Uh, and the same thing with Twitter. It's going to persist because they have the network effect. And that's what's driving all the biggest companies we see in the tech space is these network effects. And, and they have one. And so you can't just go build it. And look... When Elon and his team look at what to do with Twitter, they're going to have to decide a couple things. One, what they want it to be, right? I mean, do they want it to be more commerce? Do they want to, where do they want to take it overall? Because they have to really look at that. And then they have to say, okay, how are we going to monetize? Because the monetization methodology is going to have to fit with where we want to take this thing. And then they're going to have to go through a series of exercises about what are the network effects we're going to add to the existing network we have. Because this process of reinforcing which Facebook has been so brilliant at, Yeah. they're going to have to go through that same process. How transparent to be, what to do about identity, right? How far to go in causing every account to be a real person. What do we do about international? Because people behave on Twitter differently internationally and the vast majority of users are not Americans, yep. even though they're designing the product out of San Francisco. Obviously, they're going to have to draw the line on free speech somewhere. So they're, they're, they're going to have to both play with all the different network effects. Like what if they dropped a wallet, uh, a crypto wallet to everyone, and then allowed them to start making transactions with Twitter box? Right. Okay. That's a whole different direction where you yeah, kind of yeah. web three eyes the thing. So there's lots of different network effects that could grow out of where they are now. And, and Facebook has been brilliant and a model for how you experiment. I think they tried to do classifieds, which like Craigslist has showed us, is a network effect, two-sided marketplace network effect. They tried classifieds four times before it worked. Mm. Facebook tried groups, which is, again, this reads law, creating clusters within your overall network. They tried that five times before it worked. Mm. All right. They tried the platform, which was F8 in 2008. Fate, it was a pretty, pretty funny name. But they said, let's open up this platform and let millions of flowers bloom on our data set, which is Microsoft's what we call a platform network effect, where you build a substrate and then everybody builds their apps on top of your platform. And Facebook opened that up for six years and then decided that nothing came out of it that we need to keep. And so they shut it down. But Twitter is now going to have to become facile at experimenting with how to reinforce their, the network effect they already have without breaking their core network effect, which I don't think they can. I think it's, it's too powerful at this point, but anyway, that's, that's what they're going to need to go through. And that's going to determine, I think the future of Twitter. And um, if they could keep growing, I believe that with the right management, you could quadruple or quintuple the size and importance of Twitter if you actually were, were were a good team working on
0: it. Is there any whispers around the proverbial water cooler about who might be the next CEO?
3: No, I haven't heard who's going to be tapped to do that. But I don't think it's the CEO that matters. Honestly, I think it's the algorithm writer, and I think mm. it's the product designer, and the um, I think it's the product lead, and then and then the designers. Right. And it's the mentality they bring. It's the culture they bring to it that's going to be the most important.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's going to be uh, quite a tumultuous next year, I think, for that company.
3: Yeah. You know, I've, I've been very impressed with the Chinese government in, in one way, which is that they said, hey, social media companies, CEOs, you work for us. Oh, and by the way, I want one other person in this room. Who runs your algorithm? Like they understood that whoever is writing the algorithm Is the most powerful person, perhaps more so than the CEO. Right. And we've known that, you know, for 15 years, but no one was saying it publicly. And certainly, the U.S. government doesn't seem to understand that. No one knows who these people are. Everyone talks about Jack Dorsey or about Zuckerberg or whatever, but really, we should be talking about whoever's running those algorithms. Fascinating. I have one more question
0: before I let you go, and that's: um, we're also looking at what is happening in the market more broadly. The kind of I mentioned cameo when we first got on. It does feel like um, it feels a little RIP good times 2080 when you look at the um, valuations and what is happening in the market. Uh, You know, if you just extrapolate what's happening in the public markets to private market valuations and just what is the uh, temperature in the market, especially when you're, you know, venture capital and your willingness to back companies, back them again, et cetera.
3: Yeah, I think that a lot of the VCs I'm talking to are slamming on the brakes. Mm. And I think there's a lot of capital in the system and it's how it plays out is going to be dependent on how much capital was raised over the last 18 months and is still in the system versus the fear that's about to grip the tech space. It's going to be similar to 2000 in this sense that tech is dropping more than the rest of the market. Yeah. Tech is correcting more than everything else, just like it did 22 years ago. And there's going to be a lot of fear. There's going to be a lot of sort of, you know, grim determination and serious nodding of heads and everyone getting more and more fearful for the next nine months. And so I think that uh, I think we're going to see a tremendous cooling, except for the very best founders, the very, very top founders, I think are going to have a fine time because there is so much capital in the system but i think that the the, the bar is going to go way way up and a lot of these companies that were valued at 3 or 4 or 500 million dollars 6 months ago will be valued at 180 200 the next time they go out for capital
0: and the question for them is even if they can raise capital right because it does feel like you know companies are kind of trying to the smart ones if they have some money in the bank from their last big raise are battening down the hatches and being like let's just assume we're going to have to live off this for much longer than we
3: thought that's right. Some of them are some of them are I think the last people to get the word about what's going on are some of the seed stage founders. Right. So it's it's moving down from the public markets down into later stage down into series A and it'll get it's getting to seed in the last 2 weeks. Oh really? Yeah, there'll be sort of a reckoning in the seed group over the next 3 months as people sort of make that psychological shift, but we're still waiting for that. It's just a matter of just people adjusting. They all just have to, you know, have enough nights sleep of of realizing that that dream is over. Uh, now I'll have a different dream, getting comfortable with the new dream. and then. When you
0: say that dream, what dream are you talking about?
3: Oh, the dream of, um, I'm going to raise my seed round at 30 post. Right. Uh, and I'm going to, you know, uh, the way I look at it is I only want to dilute 5% with my seed or I want to only want to dilute 15% with my seed or whatever. They're looking at it from that perspective versus like five years ago. And for the 50 years prior to that, founders would say, I want to grow this business. I need this much capital How little can I give up to get that capital? Yeah. Now what's happened is that there's a language that's been pushed by some accelerators, we all know, to say, I only want to suffer this much dilution. And so it's coming from the other side. And so I think that that sort of language will just have to start to adjust.
0: So the balance of power is shifting again.
3: Yeah, it goes back and forth. I think think long term, secularly, the, the power is moving toward the founder for sure. Right. No doubt no doubt. We, you know, uh, I go on and on about how a hundred years from now we're post capital where the algorithms are just allocating all the capital to the best talent. So, I mean, long-term we are all moving toward talent dominating everything. I mean, we're seeing that in social media where, you know, these highly verbal, typically narcissistic people are really dominating in social media and all the power is moving to them because they now, for the first time in history, have a technology which allows them to go direct right, without, anybody taming the savageness of man. And they claim, look, there should be no mediators. There should be no censorship. There should just be free speech. I'm like, yeah, we'll see how that goes.
0: <laughs> taming the savageness of man. I like that's. I'm going to, I'm going to
3: hold on to that one. That's a Edith Hamilton quote.
0: That's great. It's great.
3: She translated a lot of the stuff uh, from the Greeks about a hundred years ago. And she, she pulled that quote out of some of their writings.
0: Well, thank you for taking the time as ever. It's always great to kind of, um, ruminate on the state of things but um yeah interesting interesting times and um we'll check back in with uh ol musk and twitter and see how it's all gone
3: (laughs) no it's it's going to be great we're we're in the age of networks and network effects and now we're going to see network on network battles and it's going to be very interesting it's a whole new type of warfare
0: indeed And that is all the time we have. I want to thank Hani and James for taking the time to talk. I hope you guys enjoyed that. We kind of went all around the houses, covered a lot of ground there. But I think it's just, uh, it's endlessly fascinating. It's a really interesting time we're living in. And it's going to be, it's going to be a show to see how this all turns out. And I think it's going to be dramatic in ways we can't even really conceive of yet. So we shall see. But anyhow, I hope you enjoyed the show. I'll be writing about a bunch of stuff in the paper this weekend, so do check that out, thetimes.co.uk, or buy a paper if you're in the UK. You can also find me on Twitter, at Danny Fortson. Email me, danny.fortson at sunday-times.co.uk. And that is it. Thank you so much for the ratings, for the reviews, for listening, for telling your friends and neighbors. I really do appreciate it. Have a fabulous weekend, and we'll talk to you very soon.